Again, glad you guys are here. My name is uh, David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. Those of you who are joining us online, we're glad you guys are with us as well. Middle school, y'all can slip out with Emily in autumn if you'd like to. Everybody else can turn to Ezra chapter 6. I like it. They're seeing who goes and then the rest of them follow. (laughs) If you're in here and you're in middle school, it's definitely going to be better down there. I would encourage you to go. All right. So Ezra, we've been looking at this for several months. So we've got these returnees, 42,360 Jews who returned from Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem. Uh, They've been rebuilding the temple. And then what we saw last week was the local leadership, the governor, his name is Tatanay. He comes to them, and I think he's trying to intimidate them and to harass them and to get them to quit working. He wants to know who gave him authority to build, and he wants a list of the people who are helping, and he wants to pass that on to the king. So again, that to me is a pretty intimidating thing. If I'm part of this minority group, doesn't really have any power, and, uh, and the governor's wanting to give my name to the king, it makes me pretty nervous. And so Tatnay sends a letter to Darius, who's the king, and he says, these guys, these Jews, they're rebuilding the temple. You need to know about this. And they said Cyrus, who was Darius's predecessor's predecessor, too removed from Darius. He, they said Cyrus gave him permission. So can you see if that's true? And he sends a letter to Darius, and Darius has some guys do some research, and he sends a letter back to Tatnay, and he says, yes, absolutely. Cyrus gave them permission to build, and so you need to leave them alone and stay out of their way. And I want you to fund the construction of the project through local tax revenue. And, and I want you to provide everything that they need for worship, whatever it is, bulls, lambs, olive oil, flour, salt, whatever it is, you make sure they have what they need to worship so they'll pray for me. And, and, and if you don't do that, then we're going to pull a beam out of your house and impale you on it. So that's the letter to Tatanay, uh, Darius's reply to his thing. So we'll pick up there. What's the response once uh, that letter makes it to Jerusalem? Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanay, the governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates carried it out with diligence, and you would too if it was on threat of impalement. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adair in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So that's March 12th of 516. So on March 12, 516, they finished the temple. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, so that's on April 21st, on April 21st, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites have purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. 
So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors, in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. So two big events, one on March 12th, one on April 21st. The temple is built, rebuilt, and then, that's driving me nuts. Nothing we can do. It broke at eight. It was, and then Bo fixed it. No, he didn't fix it. Although he's really good at leading worship. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and he's better than me at doing this kind of stuff. So we'll just do the best that we can. Huh? It doesn't have a clock on it. And then everybody's going to be upset. For those of you who are online, I'm sure you're happy. You can fast forward through all of this. So two major events, May, March, excuse me, March 12th and April 21st. The temple is finished and dedicated, and then the Passover is celebrated. I think the events are pretty straightforward, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. So three and a half years after the guys really started working. So remember, they originally returned in like 538, 539. They built the altar. They started working on the temple, and they got discouraged really quickly, intimidated, uh, frustrated, and they quit. They didn't work for 16 years. So when they begin to work again in 520, it only takes them three and a half years to get the temple built. And I, I love the way it's framed here in Ezra. They were prospering and building under the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. These two prophets from God, we talked about that last week, the importance of sitting under the word. So we had the prophets who were encouraging them and spurring them on in their work. And then uh, the temple is rebuilt according to the command of God. Absolutely, we get that. We expect God to work through Haggai and Zechariah. Those are prophets. We expect God to work through his people. That's what he normally does. They're the ones actually doing this work, rebuilding the temple. But it says not just the command of God, but also according to the decrees of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, three pagan kings. Not expected. He works through Cyrus. He stirs Cyrus's heart to say to the Jews, hey, you guys, all you guys that are in captivity, y'all can go home and rebuild the temple. That's in 539. Through Darius, we just saw what he did. He said, didn't just reaffirm the decree of Cyrus. He also said to Tatanay, make sure that you're paying for the construction of the temple and make sure you're providing what they need to worship God. Artaxerxes, we haven't seen him yet. He doesn't come on the scene until chapter 7 in about 80 years. But the, the guy who wrote Ezra, is, he's writing after the fact. And so he's seeing all three of these kings who are pagans, not submitted to God, used by God. And I hope that encourages you. We talked some last week, kind of aftermath of the election and how we're supposed to understand our assignment and, and our posture regardless of who's in power one of the things that's really tricky for us is trying to judge someone's relationship with Jesus, especially from a distance, and especially, especially if they're a politician. And for some of them, it's to their advantage to play up a relationship with Jesus. And for some of them, it's to their detriment to do the same. And regardless of the personal faith of the people who are in office moving forward, uh, you can take comfort from that little summary in Ezra. God works through his people. You know that. He works through Haggai. He works through Zechariah. He works through Zerubbabel, who is the local governor, Jewish leader. He works through Joshua, the high priest. He works through the returnees. We understand that. But he also works through Cyrus. And he works through Darius. And he works through Artaxerxes. 
He works through people who weren't submitted to him. That's why it's so important for us to pray for those who are in leadership. God will use them. We just need to ask him to do that. And I hope that encourages you and gives you some comfort. First thing they do is dedicate the temple. They give it back to the Lord. We're going to talk more about dedication in January. But for now, just know that's the first thing that they did. And then five weeks later, they celebrate Passover. It's one of the three major festivals on the Jewish calendar. Passover, and then it's followed by a week called the, the Festival or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those things are tied together. And that's what they do at the prescribed time. That was the time on the calendar when they were supposed to do that, according to the book of Exodus. And they celebrate that. And you see, there are people who are coming who are not Jews. It says locals who separated themselves from the practices of the Gentiles. So the building of this temple, it's had an evangelistic effect. There are people who are looking around and going, their God is with them. Look what they've done. And so they're attracted. They're at least to find out more about who this God is. And they participate in the Passover festival. And we read again, there's this celebration. There's an attitude of, of great joy because God stirred the heart of the king of Assyria. You may be thinking, Who, who's that? We hadn't seen him yet. So it's context for the, the Jews who are returning and celebrating this Passover. It's a much bigger deal than I think we realize. In 722, the Assyrians overran the Israel, the northern ten tribes, and deported many, many of the citizens. In 586, the Babylonians had overthrown the Assyrians, and they did the same thing in the southern kingdom, Judah, and to Jerusalem. That's what we've been looking at for the past several months. And then in 539, the Persians overtake the Babylonians, and their king says, you guys can go home. So in the mind of, a, of the Jews, they're looking, and they're basically saying, it's been three different empires, it's the same throne. They're, they're ruling the same basic area, and for us, it's not a huge difference because we're not free. We're under the rulership of some pagan government. And so stretching back 200 years from when God stirred the king of Assyria to overrun the northern empire to when God stirred the king of Babylon to overrun the, the southern empire, now he stirred the king of Persia to restore us and to bring us back to this land. In their mind, this is the, the end of a 200-year kind of odyssey, 200 years of judgment and punishment that they've undergone because of their own disobedience. And that's all come to an end. It's a huge deal for them. Two lenses I want you thinking about, a historical and a theological. So historical, we're going to blow through this pretty quick because we've talked about it multiple times. What happened and what does that mean? I think if you're, if you're just re recounting the major events of the last 70 years, the takeaway is that God is a promise-keeping God. In 586, the Babylonians overrun Jerusalem, destroy the temple, destroy the city, deport 10,000 of the leading citizens. And then in 539, he stirs Cyrus, God stirs Cyrus to let the Jews return to Jerusalem. And then in 516, we see that the temple is rebuilt and restored. Three major promises of God were called into question in 586 when the Babylonians overran Jerusalem. The land, we call it the promised land. God said to Abraham, here's the dirt that I'm going to give to you and to your uh, descendants. Well, they just got kicked off of that dirt. They got forcibly removed. So is God going to honor that promise? Jerusalem, I'm going to put my name here, God says. This is a special city. My name is going to dwell in Jerusalem. Well, it's a pile of rocks. Is, is God going to keep that promise? The temple, this special building, the place where God's going to dwell and 
God's people can meet with him. That also is a pile of rocks. It's been destroyed. So three major promises, land, Jerusalem, temple, all called into question in 586 B.C. And for 70 years, the people wonder, is God faithful? Is God trustworthy? Is God done with us? Maybe he's still who he says he is, but we're not his people anymore. All of those things swirling around in the mind of the Jews. And when the building, when the temple is rebuilt, it's not just celebration because the construction is done. It's celebration because these promises have been reaffirmed. They're back in the land. Not all of them, but a remnant, 42,360. They're back in Jerusalem. It's not fully restored. We'll see more of that when we look at Nehemiah. But people are occupying it again. The temple has been rebuilt. These three major promises that God made to the Jewish people that were called into question in 586 have been affirmed in 516. We can look and say, well, even the exile was an example of God's faithfulness. He said way back in Deuteronomy 28, if you're not faithful, then I'm going to send you and your king into exile in a foreign land. And that's what he did. Even the exile is an example of God's faithfulness. God is a promise-keeping God. You know that. Theologically, this is one that's a bit of a stretch for us, and I want us to dig in. God is a people-forming God. The first path that they celebrate Passover, I think the reason that that's important is it reminds us of the first Passover. I think if we were to ask the Jews and say, tell me, don't just give me the facts. Here's what happened on this day and this year, and this is what we did. Tell me, like, give me your understanding. What's your perspective on what's going on? What I think they would say is it was a second exodus for us as a people. It's a second exodus for us. First exodus is in the, it's in the book of Exodus. Those first 15 or so chapters. You've got the Hebrews. That's what they're called then. The Hebrews, these descendants of Abraham, they've been in Egypt for 430 years. And many of those years, they've been enslaved, and they've been treated poorly. They're in captivity. We see in Ezra, 70 years, our folks are in Babylonian captivity. There's a point of contact or continuity. God's people in captivity for a period of time. In Exodus, God stirs the heart of Pharaoh to let his people go. Now, it takes 10 plagues, and some of them are brutal, particularly the last one. But eventually, Pharaoh says to Moses, leave. Take your people and go worship your God. We just saw God used pagan kings, Darius and Cyrus. He used Pharaoh with the first exodus. He uses, and he uses Darius and Cyrus with the second exodus. Another point of connection, the idea of worship. Pharaoh says to Moses, go and worship your God. Darius says to Tatanay, make sure that the Jews have everything that they need to worship their God. When the Hebrews are leaving Egypt, Moses says to them under the command of God, knock on your neighbor's doors and ask them for gold and for silver and for clothes. And in this way, you'll plunder the Egyptians. Remember, they're slaves. They don't have anything. But they leave enriched because God makes the Egyptians favorably disposed to them. We just read in our story, Darius says to Tatanay, make sure that you're funding the construction of this temple through local tax revenues. Another point of connection. The last thing Pharaoh says to Moses is, bless me. Darius says, let them build a temple so they'll pray for me and my sons. 
It's a second exodus. It's God delivering his people from captivity and, in our case, reestablishing them in the land. The first exodus, he's establishing them the first time in the promised land. And what we see is God is reestablishing them in the promised land. Why does that matter? God is a promise-keeping God, and he's a people-forming God, and those two things fit together. And I would say it this way if I can. Hear me. His, the, God is a promise-keeping God, and I would put that under the umbrella of God being a people-forming God. Or I would maybe say it this way. God is a people-forming God keeps his promises in the context of forming a people. And that's really, really important for us because it's super easy for us to forget. We love the promises of God. Tons of books on those. God, uh, he, pro- he provides for our needs according to his riches and glory. I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. God will never leave me or forsake me. You've got your favorite ones. Love it. Hold on to those things and believe them. The issue, if that's all we have, is God pretty quickly becomes a genie for us. And we just rub the lamp and ask him for what we want. Or a butler or a vending machine, whatever metaphor you want to use. If we if we pull apart the fact that, yes, God keeps his promises, and he does that in the context of forming us as a people, what God becomes is someone who just is supposed to give us what we want when we want it. We don't think that intentionally, but that's the trap that we fall into. We've got to hold in tension this truth that God is a promise-keeping God and he's a people-forming God. Why? Because as I read the Old Testament, the two of the things that I see that God uses to form people the most, he uses the most consistently, are delay and difficulty. Delay and difficulty. And those things can tend to undermine this idea that God keeps his promises. When we're having to wait or when things get hard. Think about Abraham. You, Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. God says to him in Genesis 12. And all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed through you. 25 years later, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, the child of promise. Delay, 25 years of waiting. 12 or 13 or 14 years after that, Abraham wakes up one day and God says, Hey, how about this? I want you to take Isaac up on the top of that mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill him. Difficulty. God uses delay and he uses difficulty to form and shape Abraham as a person. He fulfills his promise to make Abraham a great nation. But he uses delay and difficulty to form him as a man and to form his descendants as a people. It's interesting. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, here's the thing. Your descendants are going to go into Egypt for 400 years and they're going to be mistreated. And what we want to say is, well... Well, God, if you, knew, if you know that and you love us, is there a plan B? Can we come up with another option on the table? It's through difficulty that God forms his people in delay 400 years. The end of Genesis, Jacob uh, is looking at, he, he's, he's living in, in this land that God has given to him. He's got 12 kids, one of them, Joseph, is in Egypt. The family's 70. So at this point, the people of God is 70 people. That's it. Out of all the people on the earth, God's got 70 who are his. There's a famine in the land, but Joseph is in Egypt. And so he said, come and live with me. You can, I've got food for you. 
I can take care of you here. And Jacob's debating, do I go or do I not go? And God says, don't worry, just go. You're, go, and I'm going to bring you out as a great nation. From Genesis, the last chapter of Genesis to the first chapter of Exodus is 400 years. And we don't know what all happened then, but it wasn't all pleasant. 400 years to go from a family of 70 to a nation of 1.5 million. It's a long time in the fulfillment. And again, the difficulty of being enslaved that God uses to form them and shape them. And you know this for your own life. We want to hold on to the promises of God, and I want you to. We don't, want to. we don't want to let go of hope, confident expectation of a better future. We don't want to get cynical. We don't want to live kind of protecting ourselves, shielding ourselves from disappointment. But we also know the reality that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so when God uses delay and difficulty in our life, if we're honest, it can cause us to back away from some of those promises. Because it's not fun living in that tension. And if we were honest, there are times where all of us wish God was the genie in the lamp. And we could just rub it three times and get what we want. But he's more interested in making us look as much like Jesus as possible. And sometimes, and I would say often, the tools that he uses to do that are delay and difficulty. Are you going to continue to trust me when you're not getting what you want when you want it? 25 years for Abraham. I don't know how many years it's been for you. Are you going to continue to love me? Love towards God is almost always expressed as obedience. If you love him, you obey his commands. Are you going to continue to love me, to obey, even when it's difficult to do so? Abraham, strap your son to that altar and pick up a knife. That's, that, those are the tools that he uses to make us more like Jesus. It's, it's not that he doesn't fulfill his promises. He absolutely does. He does so in the context of making us into a certain kind of person and making us into a certain kind of people. And if we lose sight of that, then it's easy for us to get disappointed when the promises aren't fulfilled on our timetable or in the way that we want. You already know this. But just to remind you, some of the promises of God you will not experience until after you die. You won't experience the fulfillment until after you die. And we got to be okay with that. we got to be okay. Even if you live to 100, that's, it's nothing. It's a blink of an eye compared to eternity. Easy to say, sitting here on a Sunday morning, hard to live when you're disappointed or when you're hurting. And God wants to know in that moment of delay, are you going to continue to have faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith is trust. It's the foundation of every relationship. Are you going to continue to trust me even when you're not getting what you want? Even what I've told you I'm going to give you, not even what you want, but what I've promised you. Are you going to continue to trust me when you're not experiencing that in your own life? Are you going to continue to obey even when, the, when it's difficult? And it doesn't make a ton of sense to you. Even when you see other people prospering in their unrighteousness and disobedience, will you continue to obey even if it leads to suffering and struggling? Delay and difficulty. Two tools that God uses to form us into a people. We all want to experience Ezra 6. We want to be overjoyed when the building is built, when the promises are fulfilled. 
And we do get to experience that. But that's not all we get to experience. We also live in this tension of a God who keeps his promises and keeps them in the context of forming us as a people. And he doesn't have to choose, but if he does have to choose, he's going to lean towards forming our character, even if it means delay and difficulty. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? You're feeling, you feel good. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for one another. Um, I thought of four areas during worship at eight. Uh, these will be obvious to you. Areas where, for some of you, you're living in that tension. Promise keeping and people forming. And my, my fear, again, it's, it's, the, it's not easy to live in that tension. And so what we tend to do, what I've found, is we just shut down the hope part of us. Because it's too hard to have our hope deferred. And so there's this little part of our heart that we just get a little bit calloused towards the Lord. And we just decide, well, God's not going to fill in the blank. And it seems really subtle, and maybe it's a coping mechanism, but what it does over time is it actually creates a pretty significant gap, distance between us and the Lord. And it's us. We're the ones that have moved. What we've said is, here's my heart except for this part because it's been hurt, and so you can't have it. And again, it's kind of like this hard part of our heart, but it doesn't stay in this one area. It kind of spreads over time. And that's really dangerous, and I don't want that to happen to anybody. And so what we want to do this morning is say, God, we want to believe you to be one who keeps promises. If you choose to delay, that's on you, and we trust you as a good father, but we're going to ask. Because that's what kids do. We ask. And so that's what we're going to approach you as sons and daughters. So a few things. One, if you want to have children and you can't yet, we want to pray for you. If you're single and you believe God has not called you to a life of singleness, but to, to marriage, and that's not something that you've, you haven't met your spouse yet, we want to pray for you. If you have a chronic physical condition and God hasn't healed you yet, we want to pray for you. If you have this, there's, I don't have a great, um, I don't have a great description. The picture in my mind, it's someone trying to push kind of a rock up a hill in their work. Their work life is constantly frustrating. You just can't. I'm not talking about how much money you make necessarily. I'm just like you can't, you can't get ahead in work. You just feel like no matter how hard you work, you're just barely making it. You're just treading water. Again, I'm not just speaking specifically about your paycheck. So though there, there may be another one we'll pray for you for sure, but those were the four that I was thinking about that I believe the Lord wants to address. And I'm not making any promises and guarantees that you're going to get pregnant next week. What I'm saying is we need to, I want us to press into God as a promise-keeping God. He is forming us as a people, Absolutely. And sometimes that means delay, and sometimes that means difficulty. And that's, to me, that's his part of the equation. Our part of the equation as sons and daughters is to maintain a posture of trust and say, God, I, I trust you. And so I'm going to ask you for the things that I need and the things that I want. And as a good father, you get to decide how and when those things come to me. And I'm going to continue to live a life loving you. 
which really looks like obedience. And in this moment, what obedience, I think, looks like is asking and seeking and knocking and trusting him to respond. We'll have some people next door in that uh, prayer area. If you want to engage, talk with somebody, then please go that there. Otherwise, we want you to come forward and our staff um, will have some oil and we'll anoint you with oil. And again, it's not magic. It's just a sign of the Holy Spirit working on your life. If you don't want that oil because it, you know, we are going to put it on more than one person's hand, then you can just say you don't want to be anointed. And they are going to ask you a question and just say, what are you praying for? Just so they know what to pray. You don't have to give them the story. You can just say healing or whatever so that they know how to pray for you. And they'll be wearing masks uh, while they do that. Is that good? So if you're not coming forward, I want you to pray for the people who are. That's a tough spot to be in when you're living in the tension of promise keeping and people forming. That's a very tender spot. And so if they're, if they're here, that's what they're here for. And so I want you to be praying for God to speak to them and to move in their life. And then Bo will dismiss us in a few minutes. There, here, yes, okay. I didn't think he was in the room yet. All right, so I'm glad you guys right, got to pray. And this I want you guys to respond pretty here. quickly. <clears throat> Um, just a couple of thoughts. I have Ryan Jackson with me this morning, and uh, we've just been listening to the Lord. We've um, asking God, what, what, what specifically from that would you have us to encourage, uh, to have you guys dwell, think, read more on um, this morning? And and as David was preaching, a couple of things that came to mind. Um, one, and really they're all around prayers that I would like to encourage you to have with the Lord over this next week. Um, one in particular is for you to ask the questions of, God, what, what are you doing or how are you using this delay and this difficulty? Those two buckets I feel like are really helpful for me and be really helpful for you to be able to ask God, what are you doing through my delay and difficulty? If that's you, if when David was speaking, you, know, you were able to say, you know what, that is exactly where I fall seeing God um, not only as a God who is a promise-keeping God, but also a God who wants to form us and shape us and who knows how to do so best. I think that is really um, critical. The next part is another prayer that is more just like a conversation similar to that first question that I would encourage you to have with the Lord. Um, and it's around this question of trust. Do you trust me? And will you continue to trust me? I think those are continually on this path that we're moving to being formed as being conformed to the image of Christ. As we're being formed, we continually have to come back to this place of saying, I'm going to continue to trust you. I continue to trust what you are doing in me and through me for through my delay and difficulty. So a couple of prayer points. Ryan, do you have anything you'd like to share? Yes, and I was just thinking, too, as you were talking, that, that um, David talked about Joseph and him being the number two in Egypt. But, I mean, if you think about it, too, he had that delay. He had those difficulties also in his life. I mean, he was taken by his own brothers and then sold, and that's how he was came into the land of Egypt. And then once he even got there, he didn't give up on the Lord. He's still working hard, but then he was even thrown in jail. And it was through those experiences, too, that he was able to read the dreams and be, you know, brought in front of the Pharaoh, that he was able to read the dream that was able to provide the, 
the knowledge that they were that allowed them to prepare for the famine. So he never, you know, you kind of can see that in the scripture that he he never gave up, and it wasn't just one difficulty either in his life. It was multiple difficulties, and it was a long time period as he kind of became that number two person that was able to help out, and that God kind of was able to now bring back the people, his people, into Egypt and grow them that David talked about today. So that was just something that the Lord put on my heart. Well, that's great. I appreciate you being here and sharing. Um, guys, I'm glad that you're able to come into worship with us this morning. We just hope that you have a great rest of the day, and we'll see you next week.